Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 135 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Joanne Hathaway about everything you need to know about malpractice insurance. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, and it's smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. Today's podcast is sponsored by Clio Legal Practice Management Software. Clio makes running your law firm easier. Try it today for free at Clio.com. And speaking of Clio, today we are experimenting with a new segment where Sam is going to do a sponsored interview with Jack Newton, the CEO of Clio, to discuss the upcoming Clio Cloud Conference, which will be in New Orleans in the middle of September. We're really excited to attend the conference again, and we hope you enjoy this conversation with Jack. Hi, I'm Jack Newton, and I'm the founder and CEO of Clio. Hi, Jack. Thanks uh, for being with us today. And just in case any of our listeners have not gotten curious or listened to the segment about Clio every week, what is it? Clio is a cloud-based practice management platform. You've left out the part where it is actually was one of the first cloud-based practice management software platforms. That's right. Depending on, on how you count, the first cloud-based practice management platform we launched back in October of 2008 and launched our beta ABA Tech Show 2008. So, uh, you know, us along with Rocket Matter, uh, who I think had a, a photo finish start, if you want to think <laughs> of it that way, have, uh, have been around for almost a decade now. That's amazing. Yeah, I remember finding it when I was getting frustrated with other practice management software and was like, why isn't there just an easy thing I can use in my browser? And then I came across it. And I think you'll see um, Clio is some of the first posts on our site. It's been really cool. And we've been grateful for your support over the years. But we were going to talk about the Clio Cloud Conference for 2017, which is the fifth or sixth cloud conference. This is the fifth edition this year. That's amazing. So I've been going for all five. This will be my fifth one. Uh, you've been gracious enough to bring me along to all of them, and they've been a lot of fun. But um, tell me, Jack, what is your favorite thing about ClioCon? I think the favorite thing for, for me is the the energy level that uh, the, the conference is able to create. Uh, you, you know, you, you need to be there to, to witness it yourself and to kind of believe it. But yeah, if you go to most legal conferences, especially most CLEs, uh, high energy is not one of the the words you'd use to describe them. And you've been there, Sam. The place is electric. Uh, there's this spirit of invention and innovation that just permeates every every aspect of the the conference. And I, I just find that infectious. I'm walking on uh, cloud nine for months after the conference wraps up, uh, and I see that energy level in both the attendees and and our team, the the Clio team that's on the ground there. So it's uh, you know, I, I think we've done a great job of bringing some of the some of the energy of a Silicon Valley conference to the legal sphere and really focusing on innovation and what's next for for legal and getting a bunch of like minded lawyers uh, and support staff and thought leaders into a room together with the, the Clio team to 
to think about what the future of practice management, what the future of the practice of law looks like is my favorite part of the conference. So mine, uh, in addition to those things, which I mean, you're right, it's it is unlike any other legal tech conference anyone will have been to. You guys come bounding into rock music and dancing. And um, that's not just an act because it's reflected in the audience. But my favorite part is actually because I'm a design nerd and a, and a software nerd is your team, your design team, and you have an actual design team. It's not just a person doing it. But your design team spends time watching people use Clio. And as somebody who builds uh, websites and things, that has got to be the hardest, most painful experience um, because people do all kinds of silly things with your software after you put it out in the world. But your team sits there and watches, listens to people's feedback, um, listens to people tear it apart. And then, and this is the part that I love the best, is on the end of day one and at the end of the conference, you announce changes to the software that you're making or have maybe in some cases have already made um, in answer to those people's suggestions or complaints or um, bug reports. And I think that just blows me away. The fact that people at Clio are actively developing the product over that 48 hours based on the feedback from the people there. I think that's the neatest thing. Yeah, I find that to be one of my favorite parts of the conference. It harkens back to the very early days of Clio. And I remember the kind of connection I created with some of our early customers when I was actually coding the first versions of Clio. <laughs> and I would, yeah. I would get off a support call and email that person later in the day saying, hey, I fixed that bug or I, I, I made an improvement that that you requested. And they they fell off their chair when they saw how fast you could you could do things, especially in the world of the cloud. They're used to making a suggestion with some of the on-premise vendors and and waiting a year, if, if not longer, for an update. And that tight feedback cycle is something we view as a, a real competitive advantage. And that, that design thinking that you're thinking about is something we're, we're doubling down on this year. And, and ClioCon, with the release of, of Apollo this year, will be that will be a more important aspect of the conference than, than it's ever been, collecting feedback and iterating on that feedback. That's exciting. I can't wait to see that. So you are have yet to announce some of your speakers at the time that we're recording this, um, but you are pretty excited about your speaker lineup this year. So who's going to be headlining? So we've got an amazing speaker lineup. Uh, I'll be opening up the conference with uh, big product announcements and uh, the Legal Trends Report 2017, where we'll have a bunch of new uh, interesting data-driven insights to share with the audience. We've got Haben Gurma joining us to talk about accessibility for both lawyers and, and clients. Cool. Uh, she's a, a deaf-blind Harvard grad with an amazing life story. Uh, we've got astronaut Colonel Chris Hatfield joining us, who is just an unbelievable speaker who is going to give us an inspirational talk about planning your career and dealing with the surprises that life throws you as you're, you're trying to build your career. Uh, and finally, and, and Sam, you're the first person outside of Clio to uh, hear this announcement the final keynote speaker we've announced is Pre Parara, who is uh, the U.S. or was the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Uh, he's on the cover of Time magazine, uh, named as one of the 100 most influential people in the world, uh, and and campaigned against uh, corruption, especially corruption on Wall Street, uh, over his career. And I, I think it's fair to characterize him as a a lawyer's lawyer that will share uh, some very interesting personal anecdotes. Uh, about his life journey and what maintaining really high standards of personal and professional integrity look like. So really looking forward to seeing uh, seeing Preet speak. And I think we've got uh, the best lineup of keynote speakers we've we've ever had 
uh, at this year's Clio Cloud Conference. That sounds super interesting. And wow, what a lineup. So every time Clio Cloud Conference comes up, people who don't use Clio want to know if they ought to go. And I usually say if you do use Clio, it's a no brainer, you should go at least once in your life, because the experience of meeting the people who build the software that you rely on every day, and having a chance to influence its direction, uh, which you do anyway, but greater at the conference is really pretty hard to pass up. But if you're not a Clio user, I kind of wonder what's your what's your pitch to non-Clio users? So over the course of the five years we've been doing the conference, uh, I think it's evolved into something that is much bigger than just Clio. And in many ways, that was what we would, hoped would happen from the beginning. Uh, I looked to the Salesforce Dreamforce conference actually as a model for ClioCon when we launched it five years ago. And uh, as you may know, Dreamforce has turned into the biggest conference in the world with over 100,000 attendees and is much, much bigger than just Salesforce. It's about building a business, about marketing, about being customer centric. Uh, it's, it's, it's much bigger. There's a lot of non-Salesforce users that attend Dreamforce. And we want ClioCon to be exactly that same thing for legal. We want it to be a conference about inventing what the future of the practice of law looks like, and we believe that technology will be a really integral part of that future of, of law. And we're inviting both our customers and what I hope will be our future customers uh, and, and thought leaders in general in the industry to coalesce in, in New Orleans and, and build that future of, of law with us. Uh, I think we've succeeded in that in many ways. Every year we've held ClioCon, the number of non-Clio using attendees has gone up steadily. Mm. The overall number of attendees has gone from uh, 200 in the first year, which you'll remember our, our humble beginnings in the, yeah. the Hotel Sachs in Chicago, <laughs> to over 1,000 attendees at this year's conference with a significant portion of those being non-Clio users that just want to find out about what's going on at the uh, the bleeding edge of uh, of technology. We've also got over 30 cloud vendors joining us and putting on this conference. Uh, and I, I think that's also evidence that you can come to the conference and not just speak to Clio, you can speak to uh, 30 other technology companies that in many cases integrate to the Clio platform, or integrate with the Clio platform and uh, hear their story about how they might be able to help your practice get better or more efficient or help you deliver better customer experiences. Uh, so I, I think if if you're not a Clio customer, uh, you would uh, be doing yourself uh, a disservice if you if you didn't attend. We have a, a few tickets left. I'd encourage anyone listening to uh, to think about attending September 25th to 26th at the uh, Hyatt Regency Hotel in New Orleans. Well, and I'll say, yeah, here's my warning: is if you aren't a Clio user before you go. I think it'll be hard for you to not be a Clio user after you leave. So <laughs> most non-Clio users... That's certainly users, what we're aiming to do. Yeah, and not because you're getting sold to, but just because um, watching Clio show you who they are and what they do is pretty impressive. So Jack, thanks so much. Um, we will make sure and include a link to go to the Clio Cloud Conference. Uh, and I think we have a coupon code we can share with you that will be in the show notes for this show. Thanks so much, Jack. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Sam. And now here's my conversation with Joanne. Joanne. 
Hello, this is Joanne Hathaway. I'm a practice management advisor for the State Bar of Michigan. Previously, I worked in the world of professional liability insurance for lawyers as a claims director and risk manager. Hi, Joanne. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Well, thanks for that, Sam, and it's a pleasure to be on The Lawyerist today. Cool. Um, So malpractice insurance isn't the sexiest topic, but I remember when I started my firm, I had so many questions um, and I didn't really know where to get them. So um, I think it would be it's awesome to sit down and talk about it today. And maybe the place to start is talking about your background. So you used to work um, doing malpractice claims. Is that right? I did. I started for the carrier in uh, medical malpractice. And we actually gravitated to a book of legal malpractice. Hmm. And I had the opportunity to chair the task force for that, which was really exciting. And with starting a new policy, it actually gave me the opportunity to work with agents and underwriters. I had already worked in claims. I'd worked for a law firm previously. Uh, so it really gave me quite a diverse background. And I I really developed a love for uh, legal malpractice. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like to talk about it, so yeah. I'm here to answer any questions you have. Joanne, how do insurance providers think about malpractice insurance differently from practicing lawyers, from bar associations? I mean, they're on the, the risk side of it, right? And we're just trying on the uh, covering my butt side of it, I think, right? But is there more to it, the difference in the way that people think about it? Well, certainly there's the running the insurance uh, carrier, and you have multiple insureds over different jurisdictions, of course, too. Uh, you know, to ensure that you're financially stable. So you certainly look at it from a totally different perspective. But uh, I think one of the main areas that I have found is that lawyers tend to often think they they might not need it or uh, they're never going to have a claim filed against them. Yeah. And they 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 sometimes just don't understand the necessity of actually having it and unfortunately when a claim is filed against them then it's too little too late and they realize how much it can cost to defend a claim even if it does not have any merit just to get it to a motion for summary disposition so i think that's uh one aspect that i could point out so if somebody calls you up um to try and figure this out and i think you told me that it's one of the top five questions you get as a pma how do you start talking about why they probably need malpractice insurance One of the examples I just gave you is that unlike many other professions, uh, say for medical malpractice uh, claims in Michigan, uh, uh, there are a lot of hoops that that, uh, plaintiffs have to jump through before they can file a claim or a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in most jurisdictions, uh, a disgruntled client just needs the filing fee and, and the ability to file the complaint. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't necessarily have to have any merit. And your insurance carrier, nine times out of ten, if not uh, ten times out of ten, is not going to let you defend that claim. They're going to want to, um, you know, assign defense counsel for you. So if you had to go out and do this yourself and if you had to incur costs and loss of billable time, um, it can just be very costly to defend even a, a claim that does not have any merit. Well, and I, I, I think... You know, billing disputes are one of the main reasons that malpractice cases and claims arise. Is is that right? Am I right about that? <laughs> I am going to to say approximately, and this is kind of a moving target, but yeah. but about forty percent of collection actions result in 
counterclaims. It's a large percentage. And that's why it's so important to have paying clients and to to collect those fees, hopefully before the matter has concluded, because what I see typically happens is, um, so a lawyer will file a collection action and will get counsel to handle that matter for him or her. And so what happens, that complaint is served and a client goes to lawyer to you know get an answer filed. And maybe there's a suggestion of, gee, let's look at the way the matter was handled and shall we file a counterclaim? Well, then that happens. And so then what happens next? Then the insured has to put their carrier on notice and carrier is going to, again, assign defense counsel because there would be a conflict with collection counsel, of course. Yeah. And let's be clear, the the lawsuit is not about billing at that point. The lawsuit is a much bigger, more complicated (laughs) deal that is not going to go away by the client just giving you some money. Well, and unfortunately, sometimes there, you know, there's not much merit and the end goal is to hopefully just say, gee, if you'll dismiss yours, I'll dismiss Mm -hmm. mine. And so then not only has that the insured, the attorney who has filed the collection action, not only have they incurred costs for the lawyer that they retained in the collection action, they may have a deductible under their policy that they're paying for defense counsel assigned for the counterclaim. They may be losing lost billable hours, and so many times they end up losing money. I suppose when people ask if they should file a collection action against their client's Maybe the first question should be, does the client owe you more or less than your deductible? Well, and there, there's the way to think of it. And, and uh, you know, maybe wait till the statute of limitations has run in the legal malpractice case, too. Yeah. So, hmm. um, you know, that's another recommendation. Is it possible to, because my, my number one question was perhaps predictably, how much is this going to cost? And I'm wondering if can can is there any way we can ballpark that? Because I mean, I know what I ended up paying, but I'm curious to know if there's sort of a rule of thumb for that. You know, Sam, there is not, and I am so hesitant when people ask me, and it's right up there among you know the number one question um, because that it is a big deal. Of course, people think it's going to be very costly, but there are so many variables that go into the blending mix uh, for the underwriters of, um, you know, for instance, practice areas. That's, you know, what areas do you practice in? Plaintiff's personal injury has historically been the number one uh, riskiest area, the, uh, the highest risk area for a carrier to ensure. Followed by like family law, right? Well, family law is right up there. <laughs> family law is always up there because no one's ever happy in family law, right? right? Everybody should have gotten the vase or the kids or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, I would like to say before delving into that just a little bit more, it's so important and I see what people, what many lawyers do is they choose a carrier based upon the lowest quoted premium. Oh, yeah. And there really are many other factors I know you'll want to get into. But the coverage limits that they choose, um, the value of the matters they are handling, the number of attorneys in the firm, um, if they have prior acts coverage, geographic location, their claims history. So there are so many variables that those are just uh, a few. I mean, you raise such an important point. Obviously, cheap is great if you never have to use it, but if you ever have to use it, then you you want it, them to be reliable and you want them to actually 
go to bat for you. I mean, maybe this is an even more important question than prices. How do you even know who's reliable and, and how do you how do you vet the malpractice insurance providers and how do you compare quotes? Well, <laughs> again, there's a lot going into that. Let me just name a few and um, I'll be happy to delve into any of these as much or as little as you would like to. But uh, first of all, there's financial security, you know, security slash stability of the carrier. You want to make sure that you are dealing with someone who's not going to go into receivership next week. Um, and so you can look through rating agencies such as AM Best, and they do require a subscription, but talk to your agent. Your agent should be able to tell you what their financials look like, what their reserve reserves look like, uh, um, and also on the carrier's website. They often have uh, specimen policies, but they also have their financials and their AM Best ratings. Another area uh, to think about is, in, in it's so important and near and dear to my heart because I started out in claims and I love to handle claims, but <laughs> is the claims handling process or practices. I mean, what is the culture of the of the of the carrier? Some carriers want to defend everything and send a message to the plaintiff's bar, and we're going to try every case. Others tend to to take more of a position of, gee, if we can get rid of this claim for nuisance value, let's go ahead and do it, get it off the books, close this file. So really, where do you stand? And you had asked... How do you find out, though, about culture? Well, you can ask your peers, but one of the things I want to be careful to caution everyone about when doing that is... You know, your lawyer friend down the street may not want to tell you if they've had a claim filed against them. You know, they may be embarrassed about it, so they might not want to disclose that information. Yeah. However, your one of the best ways to, to find out is to ask your insurance agent. Hopefully, you're dealing with an insurance agent who has a lot of familiarity with the carriers that they're working with. And so, they should be able to tell you what their stance is and, and what they have found as far as claims handling practices. I mean, and you also need to ask questions such as, are they local? Am I going to have a local claims consultant who's going to work with me in a face-to-face basis? All right, am I going to be working with a call center? Those types of, of questions. On the cost, because people obviously want, is there anything we can say about how much it is likely to cost um, other than it's probably worth it? Um, I mean, is there anything, is there anything actually helpful we can say, I guess, is maybe a better way of phrasing that. What I can say, what I feel comfortable in saying is this, um, for a solo practitioner, probably for the first year without prior acts, I'm going to give a range. And again, I'm going to say there's so many variables going into this, but between $1,500 and $2,000. Okay. Would be, however, what happens for a new lawyer getting? And that's a that's a year, uh, and the the yearly premium. That's an and yes, a yearly premium. What is going to happen now is with the claims made policies, which is how the lawyers' professional liability policies are written. They're written on a step basis. So, say for instance, the first year that. Say if someone graduates from law school, okay, and they get a policy of insurance from June 1, 2017 to next June, okay? And so there's no prior acts there, right? So they're only 
the carrier only has one year of risk for them. Mm-hmm. How they're going to have what's considered a retroactive date, which if they maintain continuous coverage, they are going to maintain that June 1, 2017 retroactive date. So each year they renew that policy of insurance, the carrier has an additional year of prior X coverage. And so it, there's going to be a step rate increase each, each year. Up to, I imagine, about the statute of limitations, right? Up to, it varies by carrier, say maybe an average is for about the first six years, mm-hmm. and then it should level out. Gotcha. I, I will say, like, my, my first year of malpractice insurance was less than I thought it was going to be. And, you know, one, two, three hundred bucks a month for uh, the kind of peace of mind that I experienced seemed well worth it to me. Um, I was super happy that I had it. I was in a relatively low risk practice area for what that's worth. I need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk about the significance of the claims made basis for the way malpractice insurance policies are written. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. You could invest in marketing your firm, you could spend more time helping clients in need, or you could catch your daughter's soccer game. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With Clio, tracking time, billing, and matter management are fast and easy, giving you more time to focus on what really matters. And Clio is a complete practice management platform with plenty of tools and over 50 integrations to help you automate daily tasks such as document generation and court calendaring. See how the right software can make it easier to manage your practice. Try Clio for free today at Clio.com. Okay, we're back. And Joanne, um, you briefly alluded to the claims made basis. Can you say more about what that means and why it matters? Yes, definitely. Um, As I mentioned, uh, lawyers' professional liability insurance policies are almost always written on a claims made form of coverage. And so that means that the claim has to be made during the policy period. And that may sound a little bit confusing. Oh, so this doesn't, so this isn't about your, your price doesn't depend on how many people have made a claim against you. It's about, it's more about when those claims are made. Well, the price, yes, your claims certainly can have an impact on the price. However, for a claim to be even considered for coverage, it has to be made during the policy period I see. and on or before the retroactive date. And again, I know that can sound a little bit, a little bit confusing. So there's, uh, let me just um, expound upon that a little bit more. There are actually, there's, there are two types. There's, there's a pure claims made policy and then there's a claims made and reported policy. 
okay, and the latter is really the more common of the two. So going back to that example I gave about the new lawyer who, uh, say, let's talk about the second year when he renewed his policy, okay? So um, the claim, if if he renewed the policy from June of 2018 through May of 2019, and he had a claim that was he had a claim asserted against him during that policy period. Okay, then and if he reported it, it should be covered as long it was the date of loss, the act error or omission that gave rise to that claim occurred on or after the retroactive date. And he had that continuous coverage back to twenty seventeen, so he should have coverage. If he didn't renew the last policy period, and he reported it to the carrier, say, a month after he non-renewed that policy, then even though he had coverage for it during the policy period, there would no longer be insurance coverage because he didn't report it during the policy period. And I know there's a lot a lot to absorb there, but... Um, yeah. Well, I guess where I thought I was going with it was um, the significance of the fact that um, if you are the kind of lawyer that has a practice or um, or or just the way you practice encourages people to make claims against you, you're going to be racking up higher insurance bills, even if you're innocent in every single one of them, I think. Right? Is that right? You definitely are. There are a couple oh. of different things to think about, though, and carriers will vary. I mean, it, you know, there is some some subjectivity as far as the underwriter's decision about a premium. But say, for instance, if you're working in a very high, there's severity in claims and there's frequency in claims. Hmm. So, for instance, criminal is a very high frequency. You know, everybody has, they're not happy that they got the jail term they did. I mean, something is wrong and they have a lot of time (laughs) on their hands. (laughs) I suppose so. A lot of frequency in criminal matters. However, um, a lot of those are dismissed a lot of them, a very high percentage rate. So underwriters will take that into consideration. So yes, the premium may go up, but not as much as say if it's a, you know, a very a high indemnity payment. Mm-hmm. And another thing I'd like to point out, Sam, is this also too. Underwriters are very good at looking at the claim. If they see a non-meritorious claim, they will look to the practice the habits of the lawyer and it's like, you know, was this something that they were egregious? They have poor practice habits. If it's suggestive of a pattern um, that they think, oh boy, this is a high risk person. We're going to see this again. They don't have practice management software. They're, you know, they don't have help. They're, they have way too many cases. Um, you know, that's gonna, going to impact the premium. So I suppose every time you get a claim against you, it kind of allows um, the people who care to peel back the curtain and look at your whole practice and see what's going on there. I, I like that. Yes, peel back the curtain. That's true, <laughs> and they uh, they do. There's a, there is a lot of communication in most uh, uh, insurance companies between the claims department and underwriting. Hmm. So let's talk. You you talked briefly about coverage limits or alluded to it a moment ago, and uh, let's talk about how do we do, how do we decide what we should have and what are the different types and and how do they work okay so that is again one of the top 10 questions and understandably so people are always asking what limit should i obtain yeah, and again that answer, <laughs> the answer 
definitely going to be that depends because there are numerous factors. So, you know, a lot of it depends on the type of matters that you're handling. So say, for instance, if you're handling, uh, you know, a, a bad baby cases or wrongful death or something that tend to have really high damages associated with them, then in the event that a legal malpractice action is filed against you in one of those, then, you know, the carrier may very likely have, you know, a high indemnity payment or a jury verdict. Mm -hmm. So the big thing is to really look at the practice areas the, you know, the frequency of claims filed in those practice areas, and again, the types of matters and the value of the types of matters that you're handling. So I I know that I think we had a minimum, well, I guess my insurance provider had a minimum policy that they would write, but, um, and I think mine was like, if I recall correctly, I called it a 300-600 policy or something like that. And that was because I felt comfortable with that because most of the cases I had were you know, well under a hundred thousand dollars in likely value. Does what does three hundred six hundred mean? If somebody says that at me, what am I? Th- what does that convey to you? Okay, so a policy limit typically, and I always like to couch my answers and typically or almost always because you'll always get that one-off carrier out there, you know, that may right. start doing things differently. But typically. A policy limit has two components. So there's a per claim limit of a policy. And so that's the most a carrier will pay for a single claim made during a policy period. So with your 300 slash 600,000, if you had a claim asserted against you, the most they would pay would be 300,000. Gotcha. Okay. One important thing, I'm just going to go off on a sidebar here for a minute. It's important to refer to the policy language to determine how a carrier defines a single limit or related claims, typically they will uh, define a per-claim limit as a, um, it's the most that they will pay for all claims arising out of the same act, error, or omission. So, oh, so if there's five defendants, that's all you get most of the time. Most of the time. <laughs> so it's important, it's important to look to that, how they define their per-claim limit. Um, and then the second number is the aggregate limit of a policy, and it's the most a carrier will pay for all claims uh, made during a single policy period. So a year. A year. Yeah. Once in a while, and carriers are really getting away from this. You don't find this very often anymore, but sometimes carriers will write like a three-year policy or a two-year policy. They really, you know, they want to keep it insured. They're trying to foster goodwill and, you know, it helps with underwriting. With the idea that I get a predictable premium for the next three years as opposed to the next one year. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, it's, but again, that's, that's a rarity anymore. So, so, you know, again, you need to look at not only the types of, the types of matters that you're handling, but also the number of bodies in the firm, because the first named insured is going to be the firm. But then, gee, if you have 20 lawyers in a firm, you know, the likelihood that you're going to have more than just a couple claims in a year, it's obviously much greater than a smaller firm. So typically what you're going to find in larger law firms, they generally have an aggregate limit that's equal to several multiples, if you will, of a per claim limit. Hmm. 
Interesting. Oh, okay, so to, to wrap up on what you want for a coverage limit, basically just look at what your cases are. And if all of a sudden somebody walks in the door with a million dollar case, maybe it's time to give your insurance provider a call and talk about raising your limits. Is that a realistic option? Well, <laughs> it is, but they, you know, they probably, they may or may not do that midterm. Mm. Um but definitely it's something it's something to look at one of the things it's at least something to think about right do i really want to take this case (laughs) definitely definitely and sometimes you're going to find you're going to find too when matters are um have that much value you might have a client that's requiring that you show them or him or her the duck sheet and say what kind of coverage do you have Mm -hmm. you know i'm not going to you unless I know what what coverage you have. Um, One of the things in connection with that to think about, though, is when you are completing the application for lawyers' professional liability insurance, and I'm sure you remember this, Sam, you you have this big grid of of every potential practice area that is, you know, no matter how remote it might be, that that there might be a, a matter arising from that. But then you have to put down typically a percentage. Okay, so I work 50% of the time in plaintiff's personal injury. I do 20% family law, 2% bankruptcy. But it's asking you to basically look at your practice through the lens of a crystal ball. Well, what if you get that case that walks in the door that you didn't anticipate and you were just talking about the dollar value, but what if it's in a practice area that you didn't check off on that application. So what does that what does that do? Well, you have to be really careful about that because your policy is your premium is based a lot upon that area of the application or your practice areas. And so and also a carrier can come back and say, Hey, we didn't underwrite you for this. You didn't tell us you were going to be doing IP work. You know, we we had no idea and, and sometimes they could even say we wouldn't even have written you had we known you were going to be providing or posing this type of risk to us. So they could either deny the claim. Uh, I say either they could deny the claim or they could non-renew you. Not saying they would, but they could under the terms of that, uh, of, of the policy because the application actually becomes incorporated into in a part of the policy. So it's really important that you kind of keep that front and center and say, gee, if I'm going to take something that's not on here, I better be letting my carrier know and put it in writing so they know. I have a vague recollection of doing that and ending up getting a new policy midterm or something like that. Okay. Does that, I mean, does that sound realistic? That sounds, that, you know, and carriers will do it differently, um, but yeah, and they probably loved it that you put them on notice because a lot of people don't and where it can become especially problematic is when, again, you're dealing with a larger law firm because sometimes the administrator or someone, the one person in that firm who is handling the insurance for the firm doesn't necessarily know that, you know, in litigation they took on this new matter that for whatever reason it wasn't underwritten at the time uh, the policy was issued. Um, it can be it can be a problem. So you need to... Insurance is something that we should be thinking about more often. <laughs> I mean, I, I do... I do remember also, though, that every year when I renewed my policy, I had to go back to that grid of practice areas. Um, And I must have changed. I'm sure I tweaked it and adjusted it just about every other year. 
as, you know, the emphasis of my firm shifted and things like that. And um, so you'll be reminded of it periodically, but um, especially if you're, you have a few lawyers or more lawyers and you aren't aware of every case on the firm's docket, uh, yeah, some of that stuff may fly under the radar. Huh. Definitely. And it's more problematic too, I find in the, I mean, I talked about an issue with the larger firms and it definitely is an issue. However, many times on those larger firms applications, you know, they've checked so many boxes on that grid that, they, you know, because they're doing a lot of, uh, they're working in a lot of uh, different practice areas. However, one of the issues tends to be, and even with a solo practitioner who tends to what we call in the insurance industry, dabble. You know, mm-hmm. so they're basically taking anything that comes in the door. And I don't say that with any with any disrespect at all. I'm just saying, you know, they're they're dabbling. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, is there a box for um, everything? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You might have a kind of a high premium if you do that, but yeah. uh, anyway, one of the things, if I may, uh, to of course just stay on the limits that I didn't cover that I think is extremely important when you talk about how, what type of limit or um, how high of a limit do you need is the fact that typically lawyers' professional liability insurance limits are written. So you have a limit. So you have a per-claim limit. So again, going back to your example of the 300000 So remember, though, that there are two types of payments that are going to come out of that. They're going to be either the indemnity payment or the jury verdict or settlement, you know, whatever for the damages. However, there are also what we call loss adjustment expenses. So that's the defense counsel the expert, um, you know, getting the records, I mean, anything you need to defend that claim. And so those claims expenses are typically taken out of that, again, in your instance, $300,000. It can be nerve-wracking because you're sitting there thinking, gee, I have, the the claim is for $300,000. Okay, I've got adequate coverage. Well, as defense counsel is zealously representing you, what happens, you keep, or defense counsel is sending the insured quarterly billing statements and say if it's $25,000, suddenly you only have $275,000 left. Right. And so it keeps going down and down. So what the good news is there is an endorsement that many carriers offer, not all of them, but it's called... um Claims expenses outside the limit, CEOL is the acronym. And so for an additional premium, um, an insured can, can purchase CEOL and there will be, if you will, a different bucket for the defense costs. So What's the, the advantage limit- to doing that as opposed to just increasing your coverage limits? Well, <laughs> because you never know how much defense costs, the defense costs are going to be. So this way, you know, no matter what they are, that you're always going to have that limiting place. Hmm. Interesting. So um, we talked a little bit about um, coverage issues, but what ex- when we talk about what's covered, I mean, we all, it's malpractices thing. We all think we know it is, but um, what is covered? Like how, how do we, are, are complaints to the bar covered? Are, and, and then how do we decide whether or not it's actually malpractice or not? Okay, well, 
your carrier will tell you if it's malpractice or not because I they'll suppose. they'll deny they'll send you a reservation of rights letter and sometimes they don't know they can just look at the facts and circumstances presented to them at the time the claim is reported or the potential claim hopefully they will allow you to report a potential claim or an incident mm-hmm. and they will assess what they have if they feel there's a there is potentially an exclusion that applies to uh to those facts and circumstances then they will just put you on notice what's an example of an exclusion that might get them out of it um an example of an exclusion might be if okay if they thought there was some fraud associated with it um gotcha. some uh and so what happens though it's always it's it's very common for there to be some ambiguity there uh, say because sometimes you look at a claim and you say okay well this is definitely covered but there might be this aspect of it or component or allegation the fact that, may come out later yeah exactly exactly and so they'll always send that letter up front that says we're going to defend you but if we find out any of these things then you pay us back, basically. And and they also uh, will almost always give you the opportunity to retain your own counsel at your own expense, you know, in connection with the reservation of rights or even in defending the claim in addition to their defense counsel. But getting back to your question about coverage, I did want to mention people are never happy when I suggest this, but read the policy. It is... <laughs> I mean, especially if you can't sleep at night, right? That'll put you to sleep. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's not just what is covered, it's who is covered because you want to look to the definitions, the named insured. Um, what about predecessor insureds? Um, what, what is the definition of professional services? Unfortunately, um, it's amazing to me that a lot of the policies are very similar in the definition of professional services, of course, because they're in competition, so they need to be, but they, they'll they refer to services rendered in a lawyer-client relationship, but then go on to expound that there are other professional services such as uh, activities as a mediator, arbitrator, notary public, receiver. So in a lot of those aren't even don't even arise from a lawyer-client relationship, but that's good news for the insured, right? Yeah. So read the, read the policy and read the exclusion. Um, that does, and that can be extremely helpful. We've been mostly talking about how to select an insurance policy and what sorts of things to think about. Um, but you mentioned uh, right before I hit record that um, there are a bunch of questions or there are some questions that you say lawyers might never think to ask on their own. And I'm just wondering if there are any of those questions that we haven't already covered. There are. Um, We talked about the financial stability. We talked about claims handling. Uh, One of the things I think that is huge is the handling of deductibles. Almost all policies will be written with a deductible. And... uh, what I find is lawyers, again, tend to think, gee, I'm never going to have a claim asserted against me. And so I am going to take a really high deductible because I'll pay a lower premium, right? Well, mm-hmm. don't recommend that. But one of the things is to ask or find out if 
regardless of the number associated with the deductible, if the carrier offers first dollar defense. So what that is, is I gave the example of defending a claim that even if it doesn't have merit, defense counsel is going to have to go out there and, you know, file a motion for summary disposition and engage in some discovery, and there will be costs. And if you have a deductible, you are going to have to pay the deductible. If you can get, and if they offer what is endorsed on as first dollar defense, that means that that the deductible does not apply to defending the claim, which can be huge, especially, again, I mentioned the criminal law area where it's a high frequency. Mm -hmm. So you won't have to pay that. Also, people wouldn't, people think a deductible is a deductible is a deductible. Well, I call it the bold no world of deductibles because carriers are getting extremely creative. So insureds should ask the, either the carrier that they're working with um, or their agent, what deductible options are there? And let me just read a few of them to you here, what I have found, and it's, these are wonderful. So these are what various carriers are offering. Um, a deductible that applies to the total of all claims, uh, applying to the payment of damages only, um, a deductible that is waived if there's a ruling of no liability, uh, and then there's the standard deductible that applies to each claim made during the policy period. That's not real creative, but it obviously is still out there. A deductible that does not apply to the first $5,000 of claims expenses. A deductible that is reduced by 50% if a claim is resolved by way of formal mediation within six months. Uh, so you can see there are a lot of different deductible options that people that never in the whole world would they think to inquire about this. It sounds like uh, most of these are attempts to lower the deductible um, so that it seems more attractive, but then, uh, but really we're just moving numbers around on a spreadsheet on the, on the adjusters, <laughs> on the adjusters computer, right? To like, it, what if we excluded this? And so we automatically get a uh, thousand bucks from everybody or, uh, you know, this deductible, but we don't have to um, give them any change if the policy, you know, if the claims ultimately under $5,000 or something like that. I mean, it sounds like that's basically what's going on here. So they're just trying to figure out how to make it more attractive by changing the terms. Right. And giving more options. And also too, you know, I mean, you'll see there's kind of a theme going on here is to try and get the claim resolved. So if there's no liability, mm-hmm. you know, get it get it uh, settled within six months. Oh, we're trying to align incentives here. Exactly. Yeah. Although it does sound a lot like buying a, you know, trying to finance a car by talking about the amount that you want your monthly payment to be. Right. <laughs> you know, then you then you've given the dealer license to do all kinds of moving numbers around just to make it sound like what you wanted. Well, just like and they tell you, you're never supposed to tell. The first thing they ask you is how much do you want for your used car. And you're never supposed to tell them that because then, you know, they don't (laughs) feel on the other end with you. But some of the other um, interesting provisions that carriers are offering are coverage options, too. And people would never think to look under their policy for this is, um, and a lot of them are doing it. Because one starts to offer something and then somebody else thinks, oh, I have to jump on that bandwagon. So... For instance, loss of earnings. For loss of earnings for each day someone is at a trial or a hearing or alternative Mm. dispute resolution. Um, Those are sort of like the luxury trim pieces. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Disciplinary proceedings. 
so to, to get defense counsel to assist someone in, in a disciplinary proceeding or a grievance. Um, um, employment practices defense, you actually see that. Subpoena assistance. Um, and a lot of them are offering some assistance or coverage, and it's certainly, for the most part, not real comprehensive, but cyber liability coverage. So you really, there's really a, a lot of creativity that you can find in some of these insurance policies. Well, and I suppose uh, this is also a good reason to know what you've paid for. Um, I know that uh, one of the the same insurance provider that I had covered the first five hundred or a thousand dollars of attorney's fees to consult with an ethics ethics counsel um, in light of a, a problem that a claim that you were worried about. So before anything has arisen, they would actually pay for you to consult with ethics counsel. I assume they figured it was um, good preventative maintenance. Uh, but a lot of lawyers didn't really know that they had that ability, and taking advantage of that, I, I don't think impacted your premiums in any way. And so, you should you should know what you're entitled to and what you're paying for for exactly. sure. Exactly, exactly, and that's why I encourage even if there are two lawyers in the firm or five lawyers I, to even though there's maybe one person, and I do encourage one person to be the go-to person for the agent or the carrier so that they know everything that's going on with that policy, but to sit down and have a meeting or even quarterly meetings to sit down and say, does anybody know of any claims? These are our, the requirements for reporting. This is our coverage. This is what we have available under the policy to educate everyone because particularly with the claims process, you know, a lawyer might know of something out there that, oh, no, I, I missed a deadline. I have this default, and they don't want to disclose it to anyone else in the firm. And that can be a huge mistake because they can risk their losing coverage for that, even though there might otherwise have been coverage under the terms of their policy. So, hmm. Any other questions that you wouldn't think to ask that we wouldn't think to ask that we probably should? No, I think we covered a lot of them, Sam. <laughs> so when you get to the end of your conversation with a lawyer who's calling you to talk about malpractice insurance or who's who's come to your office to talk about it, um, what do you tell them to go do next? What's the next step they should take? As far as getting an agent or, you know... What do you, once you, they... what do you send them off with? Do you tell them to apply to five different policies or... Or should they start reading up on insurers? What what is, what should they do next in their search to figure this out? I recommend there actually there are a couple of different resources that, um, or one in particular that I uh, refer people to, and it's actually a um, it's put out by the ABA Standing Committee on Lawyers Professional Liability. And it's actually a map and it's a grid of all the different insurance carriers in the United States. And so you can pick your state. And for instance, I would go to Michigan and I'd click on the map on Michigan and it's going to list all of the different carriers that write in my state, but not only just the carrier name, because that's not going to tell you much, but they are going to provide all of the information, a lot of the information that we just discussed. So they're going to say, what's the minimum deductible? Do you do you offer first dollar defense? You know, what's the highest limit? So just to have that resource at hand. So that would be one recommendation I would make. The next would be is to be is to find a knowledgeable agent who writes or works in the world of professional liability insurance. Can any agent probably go out and get coverage? 
Yes, they can, but it really is quite a specialized area. And if you can find an agent, and there there are many of them that maybe work with five or six or seven different carriers and can get several quotes and uh, say this carrier offers this, this carrier offers something different. And, uh, you know, I think that is the best advice I could give. Well, and you didn't mention the one thing that I think we should, um, and we probably should have mentioned it up front, but you have literally written the book on malpractice insurance for the ABA. The book is called Legal Malpractice Insurance in One Hour for Lawyers. Uh, Does that mean that we can read everything we need to know about malpractice insurance in one hour? Well, I think that you should be able to get it, get through it in one hour or uh, maybe a little bit more. But what what is not contained in the book, I have uh, I have provided a chapter on additional resources that people can go to if they would like to actually do a deeper dive into legal malpractice insurance. So hopefully it provides a lot of good information. So maybe that should be step one in doing your due diligence is hop, get, grabbing the book and um, doing your research and then getting the chart and off you go. No, I do hope the, I enjoyed writing the book and I do help that. I hope that it's a helpful resources for the lawyers and law firms who happen to take a look at it. Well, Joanne, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, lots of information there and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Sam. It's been my pleasure. Make sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and the Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice.